0: Welcome to the first podcast for Insights, the Faculty Journal of Austin Seminary. I am William Greenway, the Editor of Insights and Professor of Philosophical Theology here at Austin Seminary. The author of our lead essay for the Spring 2020 issue of Insights, which is focused on theology for abundance, is David Hadley Jensen. Professor Jensen is a distinguished scholar, the author of ten books most recently a theological commentary on 1st and 2nd Samuel, and a book on the history of Christian understandings of Christ. He has also written extensively on theology and childhood, parenting, and human sexuality. He is currently Academic Dean and Professor in the Clarence N. and Better B. Frierson, Betty B. Frierson Distinguished Chair of Reformed Theology here at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. The title of his essay, which we will will be discussing today, is Theological Education for Life Abundant. An abbreviated written version of this discussion can be found in the spring 2020 issue of Insights. Welcome, Professor Jensen. We are looking forward to learning about theological education and abundant life.
1: Thanks, Bill. It's good to be here.
0: Now, you see the Gospel of John stressing how Jesus came to bring us abundant life. I want to hear more about your vision of abundant life. Is there there a difference between, say, the good life uh, that so much of our society is
1: aiming at, and life abundant? Yeah, great question. Um, Certainly, uh, we hear a lot uh, along uh, our national conversations about abundance, uh, about the good life, the quest for the good life, what makes for a life worth living. Often in our society when we talk about abundance, we immediately drift toward the material. So it's our, our, um, it has to do with things, it has to do with stuff, it has to do with accumulation of enough goods for, uh, to ensure a, a good life. I think the way Jesus presents uh, life in abundance uh, in the Gospels, not just the Gospel of John, is quite different from that. Uh, abundance in Jesus' vision can, uh, centers on our relationships. Not on things, our relationships, our relationships to God, our relationships to other people, to other creatures, our relationship to creation itself, and so I think we see in the um, the pattern of Jesus' life is is uh, life flourishes when those relationships flourish. We see that in his relationship to God, um, who he turns to in prayer over and over again. Jesus teaches us to prayer. He models what a, a life in um, flourishing relationship to the divine looks like. Uh, Jesus also encourages us to turn toward others. The, the, the life in abundance uh, it, it calls us to love our enemies as well as uh, those nearest and dearest to us. Uh, and so we see in the pattern of Jesus' life that the, the circle of our concern gets wider and wider and wider. It, it in cor- incorporates those who we are uh, sometimes prone to dismiss. And then finally, I think even in the life of Jesus, you see uh, a pattern of what life in relation to God's creation looks like in flourishing. Jesus, uh, often when he's overwhelmed, he he uh, he leaves the crowds and goes into uh, what I see the, the natural world for renewal. Um, Jesus uh, encourages us to consider the lilies of the field in our in the life of prayer, and so. You know, I think the the life of abundance portrayed in the Gospels is all about relationships. The life of abundance that our society often trumpets uh, has to do with things. And though uh, the the, the pattern of Jesus' life concerns things, it's not reduced to things. It encompasses uh, all of our relationships. So that's how I uh, see those spinning out. Okay.
0: At the end of your essay, um, you, you end with a reference to Jesus' crucifixion yeah. uh, at age yeah. 33. Right. 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 It, it seems like this would yeah. wow. seriously right. qualify what people yeah. might
1: understand oh, by yeah. abundant yeah. life. How, yeah. how does that uh, dynamic come into play? That's an amazing question uh, that I'll try to uh, answer. Um, you know, I think part of uh, how I see the crucifixion uh, is this. Jesus offers a pattern of abundant life. And that's the very thing that uh many of the powers that be in his time uh, see as a threat. Um, let me spell this out a little more um, can you just what you do know. they
0: see as a threat exactly
1: well, this circle of wider and wider concern okay. um you know I, I do think the Roman Empire sees uh, the, the pattern of human relationships as power over others uh so that that uh Rome extends its reach uh, by exerting its power over other peoples and tribes in the, the ancient Near East. Um, Jesus offers another model of um, uh, widening the circle of concern, uh, uh, seeing power not as power over but power with and power uh, that empowers others to life in its fullness. Um, it's clear to me that Jesus doesn't seek his own death. I mean. Uh, um, I take his prayer in Gethsemane quite seriously. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours. And so there, Jesus doesn't actively seek his own death, but the death-dealing powers that he confronts um, uh, f- uh, force that upon him. Um, and it, it, I think what we see in the, the death of Jesus is the clash between... Uh, a vision of the abundant life, and a vision of life that seeks uh, the benefit of some at the expense of many. Um, and that's, that's, how, you know, that's, that's how I would understand the death of Jesus. And, and what the death of Jesus shows us, I think, is that there are fates that are worse than death. Uh, a life that's cut off from others. A life that's cut off from uh, the, the, the life-giving uh, world that God has given. All the ways that we cut off uh, relationship are uh, can lead to a, quote, life that is worse than death itself. And so Jesus uh, offers this uh, 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 vision of life abundant and is willing to die for it. That's, that's how I see it. it yeah. um,
0: are there especially significant theological confusions, um, you know, things theological education might want to address, um, that might obstruct people's ability to live abundantly?
1: Yes, I mean, you know, certainly um, if there is one great theological confusion that's uh, landed on the scene in North America and and frankly worldwide uh, in the Christian community, it's uh, the vision of the prosperity gospel, which is a vision of abundance, but it is inherently tied to material goods. That if, uh, and and the, 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 the prosperity gospel says something like this in its many different forms, that if you live a faithful life, you will be blessed with things. Um, That is a radical oversimplification, reduction of the abundant life that um, I think we are shown in the Gospels. I don't mean to minimize our relationship to material. Certainly our relationship to material things is part of the abundant life that Jesus promotes. Um, Jesus is concerned about the plight of the poor in his context. I mean, a, a, a basic minimum of Things that support uh, our uh, daily life is 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 a non-negotiable. Um, the dynamic, of course, of um, you know the pattern of the prosperity gospel is when is it ever enough? Uh, if 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 our if the abundant life concerns our relationships to things, uh, we will never have enough things. Uh, there is always someone who's going to have more. We're always going to look toward that. I mean, it's, it's insatiable. This is how I think, you know, I think Calvin was right about the dynamic of sin and the dynamics of greed. Uh, it is fundamentally an insatiable appetite. Um, and so that's so that certainly the prosperity gospel is one of the primary um, threats, even if you will, to a vision of abundant life that the, the gospel seeks to
0: You, you speak of people yeah. spending Sunday mornings um, at coffee shops, right. staring at iPhones, or watching their kids play <laughs> yeah. club soccer. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to have to plead guilty no. to that last one. Me too. One. Uh, me too. Uh, this morning, my newspaper had a headline that yeah. read, How Fitness App Strya Became a Religion. Yeah. And it said the app provides community, training mm-hmm. data, and motivation. To millions of athletes. Now, I love going to coffee shops, Right. I love that my kids play soccer and I enjoy amen. camaraderie with the other parents. Yes. I have nothing against Instagram and phones. Yes. I'm all for exercise and running clubs. Yes. So yes.
1: what's the problem? No, I, I'm for all those things, too. I, amen to, to everything that you have said. Uh, I think what I was trying to address in that um, comment that I make in the essay is that um, there does seem to be a general pattern in American life of shunning some of the forms of community that have shown to uh, promote and sustain our relationships with each other and with the living God and God's creation in favor of doing it all myself. Okay, so I mean I depend on the iPhone every day. Uh, Does the iPhone in the end and how it is used, does it enhance our relationships with others or does it cut ourselves off? Does reading the Sunday paper enhance our relationships with others or does it cut it off? Uh, My problem is not with any one of these things that I list in that litany of of things. Um, I do think something is lost when the gathered people of God either seek communities that are so homogenous that they simply reinforce their own worldviews and their own stereotypes and their own um, biases, and gathering with a community uh, large enough where you break bread together with people who will occasionally annoy you. Uh, the, the 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 vision of the reign of God that Jesus promotes is not a community of the like-minded. It's a gathering of peoples from East and West, North and South, uh, different experiences in life. And so I do think the patterns of our affiliation in North America tend to isolate us more and more from one another. And the vision of church that Jesus promotes uh, draws people from all corners of the world. And so I think what I was really trying to diagnose is what are the patterns of modern American life that tend to insulate ourselves from one another and the, and the, the beautiful differences of the human community, um, that being said, there is no such thing as an ideal church, there is no such thing as an ideal you know they, every every community that gathers around word and sacrament uh, falls short of, of the vision God calls us to embrace um, so
0: but, but it, it you know, seems like. Uh these other communities, as great as they are, don't necessarily meet in their fullness the abundance you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we see people but, desperately striving for community. Yeah. Maybe is it too much yeah. to say even there's a way in which, and, and I think the way you yeah. speak generally, this yeah. would apply not to just to churches, but to synagogues and yes. temples and mosques, exactly. but communities of faith that, right. that share in some way the sense of abundant yes. life. That there's, yeah. there's a way in which many people are moving away from these communities at yeah. yeah. precisely yeah. the
1: time right. that they most desperately need them. Yeah, I mean, look, exactly. I mean, I I do think, I mean, look at how fragmented our society has become politically. Uh, Instead of um, believing something when you see it, people see it when they believe it. (laughs) Um, How do the communities that we are drawn to, whether they're online or whether they're uh, in the flesh, how do they challenge me? How do they open me up to, to new perspectives and, 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 uh, and um, the beauty of, of other people who live and act and think differently from my own way of living? I mean, I think this is part of what was so scandalous about the life of Jesus, is that uh, he crossed boundaries that were taboo. And that's, uh, uh, you know, Jesus, in the end, doesn't ask us to found a denomination. He asks us to follow him. I, I, I know there will probably be questions that he ask about patterns of religious affiliation in the U.S., and that's, uh, I try to address some of that. So but also, you don't
0: yeah. interpret follow him individualistic No. To no. follow is to yes. be part of a community yes. Yes. Uh, in yes. this way. I mean, it's right. a vital part exactly. that, of, of, that, that follows from yeah. you. Being about and right. for others, right. uh, which right. addresses kind of the loneliness that also exists exactly. so much about in yes. contemporary society, where people. I've never been surrounded by more people, never right. been more connected, and never felt more alone. Right, right. And that's almost a cliche right. now. It, it is that, that yeah. you're yeah. going right after. Yeah. You've, you've written books on parenting um, yeah. and childhood. Yeah. Uh, when you think, in particular, of youth, because a lot of things on that list have to do with our kids. Oh yeah, um, and and church or a youth group, and 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 what uh, what concretely we would want to provide uh, ourselves or have our churches provide what can distinctively be provided by theological understanding and education that, that would be helpful for children in living abundantly. So, yeah.
1: so are you asking a question of what makes youth group, for example, different from a soccer team? Yeah, more? but that would be one way of phrasing it. As much as I love the soccer
0: team in that community, yeah. are there distinctive elements um, yeah. and, and characteristics that you know the, 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 the gym or the soccer club or these other communities, they're part of a, a rich life, perhaps, but yeah. is there something distinctive that theological understanding and uh, reflection in mm-hmm. the community of a, of a faith community mm-hmm.
1: uh, would bring or mm-hmm. other ways yeah. to
0: think about that as we think about parenting?
1: Yeah, let me try to address this. It's an amazingly simple question that is actually quite rich, and um, I'm not sure I can capture all the richness of, 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 of the question itself, but here are some thoughts. Um, of course, there are many things that, uh, for example, a youth group or an uh, adult Sunday school group and a, and a soccer team or a bowling league share in common. Uh, it's the ways that uh, the gathering together week after week uh, for a common purpose uh, nourishes the bonds between us that, that make for a good life. Uh, over and over again, we see, we see this uh, uh, happening. Uh, I would say, however, that what distinguishes the gathered people of God on Sunday or the youth group on Wednesday night or Sunday afternoon, um, at the end of the day, it's not centering around so much a common thing, such as a love for soccer or a love for exercise or or healthy habits, uh, but it's an orientation uh, to the beauty of God and God's world. So, So there's something that there's a decentering that happens in the church uh, where it's not all about me and my needs. Um, um, It centers us, if you will, in the majesty and mystery of God's grace and in a story that is so much larger than um, any of the other narratives that sustain us. So there's a comprehensiveness, I would even say, of, of of what uh, faith communities and what uh youth group uh, seeks to do over and against all the good things that soccer teams and, and these are the things that have, you know, I mean I think about where where have I made uh friends in my community it's often through youth sports um it's through you know that, that's that that happens and and that's that's to be celebrated so I'm not seeing that as a, a I don't see, you know. There are sometimes I, I hear people talk about youth sports happening on Sunday as a threat to Christian community. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, I'm like you. I have been to games on Sunday morning that have conflicted with church. Uh, I felt ambivalent about that, but I, at the end of the day, I, I'll pick going to the to the game that my child is in. So, um, it's, not so it's not an either or. It's a both and. Right. The problem right. happens yeah. when
0: the the these things. Arise, perhaps, to the degree that the other piece—the church piece, the youth group piece—the yeah. formation of that community is yeah. somehow there's no space for it. Yeah, uh, that's maybe the, a danger. Um, yeah,
1: I, and I think parents and and children have to negotiate all of these things. I mean, you know, what uh, what does it mean to live a faithful life at this moment in time when the demands on time are arguably much much more? I mean, what one of the th- I will say this about parenting, and childhood, it does seem like you, quote, have to specialize in something earlier and earlier and earlier. Otherwise, you lose. I remember when our daughter expressed an interest in gymnastics at about, in about the sixth, fifth or sixth grade. <laughs> and she wanted to take a gymnastics class, and there really weren't any options. It was too late. It was way too late. Way too late. <laughs> way too late. And, and that's the, the, there's something that saddens me yeah. about it. About
0: that Uh, So right. the words theological education Can invoke visions of seminaries And professors But for most people theological education Comes from the pastors And youth pastors, Christian educators And Sunday school teachers And the more than 380,000 Christian congregations And that's just to name Christian congregations um, In the US So how do you conceive of the relation Among seminaries and such, and all those others engaged
1: in Christian education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. In just, I mean, uh, the, the phrase theological education sometimes gets reduced to seminary education, education for the training of leaders in the Christian community. Um, I see theological education happening whenever there's intentional reflection in community with others on our growth in the christian life okay um congregations are very well uh equipped to do that um because congregations are the place where that life gets lived out where it's modeled um of course that uh assumes that congregations have uh, Competent and faithful leadership both clergy and and laity. Uh, I think um, How do I want to put this Um, Seminaries flourish when their relationship with congregations are flourishing Um, um, We are not we at seminaries are the training ground for the leaders of the church but uh, Our students, uh, as they do degree programs here, uh, do field placements in congregations. And I think each student uh, is challenged by the circumstances of those congregations. Um, um, And so there's this delicate dance and and, uh, interconnection between the life of the seminary and the life of congregations. Uh, I sometimes hear the critique that seminaries are bubbles. Uh, I don't buy that at all. Um, Our faculty at Austin Seminary is constantly in conversation with uh, congregations in the Austin area and beyond, in fact, all across the country. Whenever I have spoken in congregations, I have been impressed by the hunger that is in congregations for substantive um, questions and dialogue about matters of faith, about matters of public life, about things that matter. Um, people don't want uh, a, a dumbed down uh, set of answers to, to basic questions. They want to engage and live the questions that uh, that, that uh, sustain life. And, and I encounter my work at the seminary is renewed uh, whenever I teach uh, in congregational settings. So that's, that's uh, those are some thoughts on the question.
0: And, and my next question, I'll go ahead and ask it, but you kind of went ahead and answered it. So I, I take that as a very good sign, was that you mentioned actually a growing hunger um, yeah. for theological education among adults. And I was going to ask, you know, what's the cause of this, and, yeah. and what do you think they're yearning for? Yeah. Uh, you, I mean, maybe you've already answered that question, well, but I,
1: it's it's something also I've witnessed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I I don't know. I I contrast so much of contemporary American political discourse with uh, what I see happening in the seminary, what I see happening in congregations. A lot of easy answers are offered by uh, would-be leaders these days. Ways of lumping some people into some categories who you're supposed to listen to and others in other categories that you dismiss. Whole whole hawk. Um, um, visions of life that see some as threats to quote, our way of life. Um, visions of life that assume that God is on your side. Um, what I see in congregations, what I see in conversations that I have with our students and colleagues in classrooms is is struggle, is a refusal to settle for pat answers. Um, I just got back from a remarkable retreat, uh, and I know you've been on this retreat before, that gathers Christian, Muslim, and Jewish seminarians for a better part of three days on conversations about things that matter. And our topic this time was prayer. And what we saw in that gathering was um, we got some exposure to the practices of prayer across these traditions uh, in ways that deepened our appreciation of each other's traditions and strengthened our own prayer life. Uh, And those kind of opportunities are exceedingly rarer our society where uh, um, we are sometimes encouraged uh, to write others off and I and, and so I just I maybe there's more hunger for um, authentic theological reflection and spirituality because there's so much in our political and economic discourse that refuses to cultivate those very things
0: Now, you say the trends have reversed recently, but you reference a familiar decline story about seminaries and churches. I want to just throw out some statistics. According to a 2017 study in the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion, in 1998 there were roughly 220,000 Christian congregations in the U.S. In 2006, That number jumped to 401,000. There's no explanation of why. (laughs) We're just going to be in the data. Maybe 911 is place. I mean, it'd be interesting to know these dynamics, what the relation. But this is just, but anyway, from 220,000 in 1998, 200, or or rather to 401,000 in 2006. And then by 2012, it had decreased to 358,000 congregations. Now, one could refer to 2006 to 2012 and report that more than 7,000 Christian congregations a year are shutting their doors. um, Ignoring this radical up-and-down shift, and we just saw that in a graph, you never draw a conclusion about a trajectory from it, and the net increase of more than 100,000 congregations uh, from 1998 to 2012. So, uh, let's take one other example, and this is noted in your article, between 1998 and 2018, church membership in the U.S. declined from 70% to 50% of the U.S. population. Now, that sounds like a big drop in church membership, but in absolute numbers, that means that in 2018, there there were 163 million church members in the U.S., Mm -hmm. which is 10 million people more than the entire U.S. population in 1950. Now, on the other hand, there's been a slow but steady decline um, in mainline uh, churches. So what do you make of all of this data and yeah. the different ways that
1: you use it? How do you, how do you respond to that? Let me respond. by saying say what I don't make of it and then what I do make of it. Okay. Uh, I think what I don't make of it is is a sky is falling mentality. Uh, I have been in gatherings where uh, statistics get cited about the Protestant mainline that essentially boil down to this. We're shrinking beyond Uh, anybody's imagination, and if we don't blow things up the way they are, uh, we're doomed. I don't buy that one bit. Um, I am enough of a Reformed Christian uh, to be convinced of a thing called the perseverance of the saints, Uh, that the church uh, is God's beloved, uh, and the church will endure come whatever. Uh, Now, the shapes of church life are changing. What what I do make of these statistics is that the fabric uh, and the makeup and the patterns of religious affiliation are changing uh, as American society becomes more diverse as our uh, suspicion, uh, often rightly so, of of, of certain authorities uh, uh, gets lived out. I mean, you look at uh, you know the sexual abuse scandals uh, that have not just cut across. Um, the Roman Catholic Church, but but Protestant denominations as well. There are often good reasons uh, to be suspicious of, of of structures that are more concerned with preserving a particular form of church than uh, protecting the most vulnerable. Uh, so there are all kinds of, and we are awakening to some of those things. Thanks be to God. Um, so what I make of the statistics is is is, is Our patterns of of religious affiliation are changing, Uh, the forms of church are changing, Um, and yet the church endures and will endure um, on into the future. Um, And so one of the questions of theological education, of course then, is is, uh, um, how how are we responding to the vision of church that is being lived out, uh, that looks different uh, in many ways from a denomination headquartered in a particular place and then with an apparatus i mean that that's you know I think I said earlier Jesus uh, invites us to follow him uh, to live it out in the company of others um, and some of the patterns of denominational affiliation uh, are comparatively recent uh, um, and necessary acquisitions in in the ongoing quest to follow Jesus faithfully, um, and so I, I'm not worried. <laughs> I really am not. I, I'm I'm more hopeful about the church now than I was 20 years ago when uh, some of this quote supposed decline wasn't uh, as much on our consciousness. Um, I don't. I choose not to see it as decline. I choose to see it as as uh, changes. Um,
0: that makes sense? That makes sense. And the reason you saw me pausing there for a second is because it, the what you just said took me to a question I actually yeah. eliminated before I sent you my yeah. list of questions to think about, right. which was in the article you yeah. used the terms mainline and establishment yeah. uh, in a sort of an interchangeable yeah. way, right. but historically, if you think of the Deuteronomic history right. or post Constantinian Rome, sure. or the Holy Roman Empire, sure. or Kierkegaard's Denmark, yeah. or virtually you know, any other period where the church has been establishment, yeah. it turns out establishment is not the healthiest thing for the church to be. That's precisely sure. when abundance and yeah. you know the good life tend to be, be confused. And that kind of correlates to what you said, where yeah. you were more worried 20 years ago yeah. when we were right. so confident, and maybe right. overconfident, right. maybe then in a place of temptation, and, and now does that... Uh, Maybe fit in, and that's that is not to equate that mainline with establishment, right. but yeah. to be concerned about worries over being established. No, I whether can, those I, might be. I couldn't have said
1: it better than you just said. I mean, I mean, um, uh, easy alliances between the church and whatever powers that be have always been a mixed blessing in, in the Christian community. I mean, there are you know, so uh, you've said it. Um, let me go to a related
0: question yeah, you yeah. can expand on this. So a notable trend in Protestant churches is the steady growth of non-denominational yeah. congregations, um, from 54,000 congregations in yeah. the U.S. in 1998 to 84,000 in 2012. Yeah. And, and that's without a dip. That's just a continual growth right. of, of 30,000 uh, congregations, which by tens of thousands yeah. outpaces the the sure but relatively small loss of congregations um, in the the mainline churches. Mm -hmm. So um, maybe is this related to the the signs of vitality and spiritual life bubbling up all over the place you refer to, and um, might this relate to the growth of non-denominational students here at Austin Seminary and other denominational schools? And finally, if I can do all three of these at once, let because you also talk about the value of denominations, yeah, uh, the, right. the, so this is not something to be simply lost. But so how 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 might we who value the denominations and the value of denominations? How do we react? How do how do we right. put all this together? Right, right. Uh,
1: wow, that's a lot. Um, yes, I see the spontaneous emergence of uh, non-denominational traditions. Uh, and that's an interesting phrase, a non-denominational yeah, uh, tradition, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, uh, or non-denominational communities, uh, as a sign of you know the Spirit moving and blowing where it will. Um, we cannot contain uh, all of the movements of God's Spirit let loose in the world. Uh, and so yes, there is, uh, I we see more non-denominational students at Austin Seminary. I think that is a sign of something that God is doing in the world and a sign that we need to pay attention to. And what is where, what are the patterns and signs of flourishing in those non-denominational communities? My perennial question, having just celebrated those uh, spontaneous movements, however, is what happens to patterns of accountability in a non-denominational community? Part of, I think, the genius and witness of denominations is that the church is always more than a gathered congregation. Uh, And patterns of relationship between congregations are essential if we are to grow in our faithfulness in following Jesus Christ. Um, Because, as you and I know, um, people turn away from the living God. Communities turn away from the living God. Uh, and and, and, And sometimes communities can get quite dangerous uh, in their departure uh, and in their turn to what I would call idolatry rather than, uh, and so, so, so what, my question of a non-denominational tradition is are, are, what are the patterns of accountability that um, make sure that that congregation is not simply led astray by either a A, one charismatic individual, or be a group of powerful people within that congregation who leads it on a certain path. You know, so within denominations, there are structures of accountability that I don't always see in, in non-denominational communities. Uh, and then what was the third question? You, um, the third? How do we,
0: react in, how do we who, react in mainline denominations? What How should we react? Which you've sort of answered.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, we pay attention seriously to what's happening uh, and try to um, ask ourselves, what do we have to learn from this? Uh, are there, I, I mean, I think the Protestant tradition from, its, from the get-go has been unbelievably eclectic. Uh, Calvin had a perspective that this is God's world. We're open to goodness wherever it may be. There is not a rigid sacredness that is cut off from the rest of the world. Um, God is moving throughout the world, and we are open to that wisdom wherever it might be found. That—that that is, I think that's our task today. That also calls us to to um, name and reject what is what we believe is not from God that's going on in the world. And, and we owe that to diagnosing our own tradition and Others' traditions as well, to the best of our abilities. The
0: the drop in the percentage of people in Christian congregations yes. is partly related to an increase in the number of people from other faiths mm-hmm. um, in the U.S., uh, which you encourage us yeah. not to mourn, yeah. but to celebrate. Right. So, what and why exactly are we celebrating, and how do you envision uh, relations? among those from different faith Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm traditions. Wow. Huge question. (laughs) Um, My most honest answer, I think, is I don't know what is happening. Um, But I trust that God and God's purposes will be accomplished uh, in God's own good time. And At minimum, my Christian commitments require me to be a good neighbor with whoever I am thrown into community at this place in this time with, Uh, and that being a good neighbor uh, means being uh, open uh, to hearing what he or she has to say and how that might even change me. I think our responsibility as Christians is to tell the good news as we know it in Jesus Christ, and let God do the work that God will do. Um, uh, it sounds like you just nothing, had a concrete experience of yeah, this too. Yes, concrete right? what experience you just came this, from yes, uh, yeah. at the soft. Yeah, at the, at the sharing our faith traditions. Yeah, there there, and at that place there was an honest grappling with um, some of our different perspectives. I mean, uh, the Muslim uh, students in particular were asking us, what on how can you be Trinitarian?" <laughs> you know And that, that, that those kinds of basic questions uh, make me own my faith uh, and live it in ways that are not always possible if I'm just always in the company of people who assume the Trinity is a given. I mean, what do we mean by it? Because They think
0: you sound like a polytheist, right? right, right? right and and right. we don't feel like we're polytheists because no, no, no. we're
1: monotheists,
0: right? But, right, but
1: right. So, so that's you know, I, I found that a not a watering down kind of experience, but a, a strengthening experience for my own faith. Uh, so, so, the, so I think you know, I don't know what God is doing, but I know that I am thrown together with. These other amazing people.
0: Now, part of your essay is about uh, traveling to Austria mm-hmm. and observing the training of Catholic right. seminarians. Um, and um, uh, you say that in Austria, Catholic seminarians train for seven years. Yeah. Uh, and here in the states, Reform and conservative uh, rabbinical training, yeah. which you also observed, takes five years. Yes. Um And uh, 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 and and you talk in this about the sort of technical uh, uh, study of yeah. ancient texts, Yes. and you have a line that I just loved, which is, uh, 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 the relevance is in the ancient traditions themselves. Mm-hmm. Could, could you
1: expand upon that? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I, uh, a couple things behind you, but I'll, I'll first talk about the relevance in the ancient texts themselves. Um, I saw uh, when I visited one rabbinical school this ancient practice of paired reading of Talmud, so these ancient commentaries on Jewish law and on the, 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 the Torah. Um, that is a practice that they have been doing longer than we've had what we call Christian seminaries. <laughs> Um, And they're reading the same things that they were thousands of years ago. Uh, um, um, The texts of our traditions, I am convinced, contain the deepest and most relevant questions of a good life lived in relationship to God, others, and God's creation. We don't have to make our tradition relevant. It already is if we attend to the basic... Tenets of our faith and our our sacred texts and the traditions themselves. I think I, you know, I, I think I began uh my sabbatical thinking that I would find fresh and new ways of quote making traditions relevant outside of communities other than my own. And what I found instead, uh were life-sustaining practices that have been done over a long, long time um, that saw relevance and lived relevance in those texts and traditions themselves. That being said, I mean, I I do think one of the practices that has sustained Jews over time is the study of Torah and worship. One of the things that happened in the Sharing our faith traditions retreat that i that I attended last week was um there was a Jewish worship service and the liturgy was ancient and yet in the middle of it there was a destiny's child song that was chanted akin to
0: <laughs> I mean, it was just it was
1: it was a little bit of a uh, not quite a shock but a, a uh, how do I want to put it? But but uh, the 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 leader of that worship service talked about how this gospel song expressed the ancient tradition of our reliance on God, the sovereign God, Creator of heaven and earth, and it worked. And so, it, what I did, I mean, the, so the ancient traditions sometimes get expressed in fresh, idiom, be it a Destiny's Child song. But um, we don't have to think that. Uh, the faith constantly needs updating to be relevant. Uh, we pay attention to what God is doing in the world, we pay attention to the foundational classics of our tradition, and there is where the faith is lived.
0: You, um, you mentioned climate change uh-huh. as one of um, few issues we think we yeah. should be especially um, uh, careful to address. Now, obviously, science yeah. um, is essential yes. for understanding and addressing climate change. Uh, What distinctive contributions uh, can theological education make?
1: Yeah. Um, For me, it boils down to this. Uh, Theology, and Christian theology in particular, uh, but I think this also includes Jewish and Muslim theology as well, stresses that the world does not belong to us. It belongs to God. and there's a decentering of the self that happens uh, in a theological perspective that doesn't always occur, uh, in my opinion, uh, in, a, in a scientific perspective. I'm not saying that science needs theology to do good science. Uh, instead, I'm actually saying the reverse. Theology needs science to do good theology. Um, there is something I would even use the word comprehensive about what theology tries to address. One of the things, one of my favorite lines of Cindy Ripley's book, Holding Faith, is that theology should not be afraid to say something about everything. Not everything about everything. But what theology tries to do at the end of the day is to express the fullness of life in relation to God. And that includes economics, that includes politics, that includes science, that includes. And so, so I would say that what theology offers is a decentering of the self and human inquiry, uh, and a comprehensiveness that seeks to uh, seek out truth wherever it might be found. Um, so, I want science to do good science. Um, I don't expect the scientist to um, be a good theologian. But I expect theology to have some passing familiarity with climate science and with meteorology. You know, I mean, some some in order to talk responsibly, of what what do we mean by God's creation? And so, I think this is a different vision of how theology is comprehensive than, for example, the medieval depiction of theology as the queen of the sciences, as if it were kind of the culmination of a, of all human inquiry. What I see instead is a mode of thinking uh, that stresses, actually, uh, theology's dependence on other forms of it. Okay. So, yeah.
0: and, and this is going to be my last question, okay. unless you want to make a parting comment about your hopes for mm-hmm. theological education, but um, you stress also the need to attend place, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and, uh, and for us in particular here I in know. Texas, but of course this would be true for almost everyone at this point, no matter where they live, given our global realities and connectedness, um, you uh, named that migration yeah. as an issue that we in the borderlands uh, should also be uh, careful to attend right. to. Uh, here again, what distinctive contributions might theological reflection and education make to our
1: understanding of migration? Yeah. A um, couple of thoughts. Um, your question actually reminds me uh, that there might be a tension between these two things. Um, on the one hand, Christian faith sees migration at the core of some of its most basic convictions. Uh, the people of Israel is a people on a journey. Okay? There's the story of migration out of Egypt and slavery into freedom in a new land, then there's exile of that people, uh, and so there's a searching for a place and um, and it being displaced over and over again. And we see that reenacted in, in the life of Jesus, uh, uh, who is the one who says he has no place to lay his hand. so there's not there's certainly not a romanticization of place uh, in our uh, tradition um, and And yet, everybody is yearning for a place. I mean part of the pattern of migration is that um, People uh, sometimes, uh, out of choice or out of compulsion, are sent away from home to find a new home. Um, and maybe what I'm getting at is there's there's almost a restlessness with regards to place until we rest in the living God. Uh, that's something Augustine says something akin to that in, in the Confessions. We are restless until rest in the yoga. And so um, I think what I was trying to address and what I'm stressing place is there's sometimes education uh, can occur in, quote, no place, that that where there is no attention to where education becomes a disembodied thing. And uh, I, I think it's important to reflect on the places where we are called to be, um, the places that we end up calling home. I mean, I never thought I'd end up in Texas. Um, but it's the place that I now call home. And it's grown on me. And, I've, and, it's, and I, I now say that I'm a Texan in ways that would have surprised the self I was 25 years ago. Yeah. And, and, and so sometimes the places we are called to be are surprising and, dis, uh, and, and cause dislocation. Um, and, and this is a sort of yeah. reflection
0: yeah. that doesn't—it's not simplistic about right, migration right, right, and right, place, right, right. and yeah. and, you, and you this you referred to earlier yeah. uh, in terms of the complexities, right. Right. Uh, not right. just kind of quick yeah. knee-jerk responses. Right. Right. At the same time, you would yeah. you know the, the, the theme of welcome of the stranger, yeah. you know your your openness yeah. to the other right. would say in terms of how we react right. to immigrants right. and the, the the plight we see that also right. comes. To the fore, right. as a sort of an emphasis right. um, in, in, um, in reaction to uh, a contrast between what you did earlier with material, focus on material security yeah. and abundant life, yeah. how that would uh, cast our reaction yeah. uh, to uh, people caught uh, right. in a plight right. in a different way. Is that oh, I think also, so. I mean. I would,
1: yeah, and the other thing <coughs> that this triggers for you is maybe one of the things that Protestantism continues to offer the world at large is this tension between place in migration. It's not simply a purely a story of migration where one is never finding a home. And it's never simply a story of this is my place and I'm here forever. Um, It's, we live in this tension between um, having a home and not having a home. Um, And that's the reality of most of the world. Uh, so I don't want to romanticize migration because it's often forced upon people. I did, also don't want to romanticize home because home is often a hostile place for people. And so so maybe part of what God is calling us to embrace in the witness of Jesus Christ is um, um, seeing how all long for a home, uh, and yet all are called away from home. <laughs> and... Uh, we meet God along the way in others within the journey. So, very good.
0: Well, thank you. Is there any last words you want to say? This is good. This is, I've enjoyed the conversation. It's been wonderful. And um, so thank you for being a part of this. And uh, thanks to anyone listening, all of you that, that, I hope this was, um, Uh, stimulating and provocative and actually led to some of the complexity and and affirmations uh, that good theological education leads to, Um, you can find the article uh, this conversation was based upon um, um, in the spring 2020 issue of of Insights, Theology for Life Abundance, Um, and also there will be a shorter version um, of this interview um, available there. But thank you again, Professor Jensen, and thank, thank you for all. Thank you.